Did you mean that this morning? Father, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Such a commonly prayed prayer. We hear it at sporting events, maybe a chapel service, funeral. But do we really mean it when we say those words? The title of the message this morning is Warnings for Wandering Hearts. Warnings for Wandering Hearts. The big idea is um, maybe a little bit more somber than it, than it often is. Um, I, I think we, we like to try to, as much as possible, put a positive spin on, on our, our big ideas and, and the sermon as a whole because, of course, we have hope. As believers, we have hope in Jesus Christ, but um, this one might feel a little bit more somber, a little bit more negative. The big idea this morning is this, that because Christ is the anchor of our souls, the unanchored, wandering heart will find no rest, and if left unchecked, will incur severe judgment. I'm trying to get up to Eric's level on length of Big ideas. I'll say it again. Because Christ is the anchor of our souls, the unanchored, wandering heart will find no rest. And if left unchecked, will incur severe judgment. We'll leave that up here for just a couple minutes. What do I mean when I use the word heart? Um, some of you were here yesterday afternoon uh, with the parenting conference, and we were watching a, a parenting conference videos from Dr. Paul Tripp, and he used this definition for the heart. He said, the heart is the causal core of our personhood. The causal core of our personhood. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a professional definition uh, of the heart. Basically, when we look at how Scripture uses this word heart, obviously it does use it in the physical sense, that organ in our body that pumps our blood, that keeps us alive. But really, most of the time when Scripture's talking about the heart, it's talking about what he said, the core of our personhood, who we are. It's talking about how we think. It's talking about how we discern things. It's talking about our will and our emotions. The Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. There's, there's a thought process that goes on there. That we have the, the tendency to follow the desires of our heart. We can have joy in our heart. We can have fear in our heart. It, it is the central piece of our life. It is the thing that directs everything that we do. All of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our emotions, our desires, our discernment, our will, all come from... The heart, and as Andy alluded to just a few minutes ago, Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, keep your heart. Other translations say, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This morning, as we look at our passage in Hebrews, we're going to see the symptoms of a wandering heart. We'll see the symptoms of a wandering heart, and we'll see the prognosis for a wandering heart. The symptoms and the prognosis. If you remember back in chapter 2, we saw kind of a similar warning. There's, a, there's the warning here to, to, uh, to not fall away, to not fall into hardness like, uh, or to not harden your heart as, as they did at, these, at this time that we're going we're gonna to take a look at this morning. But in chapter 2, we saw a similar warning regarding anchoring our soul in Christ. And even Andy gave us a verse a few minutes ago talking about anchoring our soul to our hope. You're going to see this theme over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews that there is an anchor, there is a hope, and we must hold fast to it. Because if we do not hold fast to it, we will find ourselves drifting away as we saw in chapter 2. We will find ourselves having a wandering heart as we'll look at here this morning. In fact, even right before this passage, um, in the passage that, uh, that Eric looked at last week, we see in verse number six, it says, but Christ is faithful over the house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast 
our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So these two warnings go hand in hand as we see both the need to hold fast to the anchor, to Christ, to the gospel, and the need to hold fast to his word to guard our hearts from wandering. Eric already read our passage here in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to go through from verse 7 through 11 this morning. We'll save the rest of it for next week. Because our passage today actually is quoting from an Old Testament passage in the book of Psalms, Psalm number 95. So we're actually going to spend most of our time this morning in the Old Testament rather than here in the book of Hebrews because it's a quote from Psalm 95. So if you want to switch over in your Bibles, excuse me, to Psalm number 95, we're going to be there. I'll do the same here. Psalm number 95. And, and if, as you read, the, the verses that he's quoting here are, are from verses 7 through the end of the chapter, into the end of the psalm. And as you read through there, you might notice that there's a little bit of difference in the Hebrew version, the Hebrews version, than the uh, Psalm 95 version. Uh, they're both Hebrew. <laughs> well, Psalm is Hebrews. Um, so there's a little bit of discrepancy, and, and I think we have to be careful when we come to passages and we look at this, that we don't use this as, as a reason to discount the Word of God. Um, as I went back and looked at this, you read the, the passage in Psalm 95, there's some differences between uh, Hebrews chapter 3, and when you look at what the book of Hebrews is quoting, it's actually quoting the Septuagint. And if you remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right, so for example, you're going to see that in the book of Hebrews, it does not call out the two names that we see in the book of the Psalms. Psalm 95 gives us the words or the names Meribah and Massah. And we don't see those in the, the book of Hebrews. And the reason for that is because the Septuagint just translated them. It translated the words from names to what they mean. So when we read it in Hebrews, we're reading actually the translation from the Septuagint. I think it's important for, for us to remember that all scripture is given by God. It's breathed out by God. It's inspired by God, all of it. And that includes Psalm 95, and that includes Hebrews chapter 3. And 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that the, the writers of scripture spoke as they were moved and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So as the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting from the Septuagint, God caused him to quote from the Septuagint. So we need to be careful not to allow the world and the skeptics to take these little things that might look like errors, that might look like inconsistencies, and not see them as God's will. This is how God gave us his word. So we're going to look at the original, Psalm 95 this morning, even though Hebrews chapter 3 is an accurate quote. Uh, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and look at Psalm number 95. We're going to read the whole psalm. It starts off in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before, our Lord, before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa. In the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The first thing I want to I notice this morning from this passage is the context of the quote. 
Hebrews, again, is quoting from verses 7 through 11 here in, in Psalm 95. But there's a greater context in Psalm 95 than what the author of Hebrews is, is quoting. And, of course, we know that he's writing to the Hebrews, and so the Hebrews would have had an understanding of Psalm 95, would have very likely have memorized Psalm 95, so they would know the context that he was coming from. But I want us to take a look at the context here, and as you read the first six and seven verses of Psalm 95, what do we see? We see a psalm of praise, do we not? We see a song of praise and adoration to God. And I love the parallels that we see in this beginning context, this, the parallels between the God that they are praising and the God that we worship today. The things that they praise Him for in the, in the beginning of this song as they quote it, as they sing it, are the same things that we praise Him for even this morning. Just completed or perfected in Christ. The first thing that I see here is that God is their Savior. Right there in verse 1, the rock of our salvation. Of course, we know that Jesus is our Savior. 1 John 4.14 4, says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Not only is He the Savior, but He is King. The next verse, let us come into this presence with thanks. I'm sorry. Yes. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Of course, Revelation tells us in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 14, that they will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb is Christ. And the Lamb will conquer them, conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those, who, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. We see in Psalm 95 that God is the creator. His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Let us kneel before our maker in verse number six. He is the creator. We know that Jesus is the creator. Colossians 1, verse 16, for by him, speaking of Christ, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And finally, he is a shepherd. He is a shepherd for he is our God. and We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Jesus told us in John chapter 10 that he is the good, good shepherd. John 10, 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This is a context of praise. It's a context possibly even of a, of a worship service. Much like we are participating in this morning. And yet in the context of that worship, in the context of, of coming together and gathering together and praising God and singing these great truths about God, the psalmist has a warning. As you come and you praise God and you proclaim these truths about God, there's a warning that he has. And, and that warning is this, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's take a look at these symptoms of a wandering heart. The first one is spiritual stubbornness. Spiritual stubbornness. He says, right there, he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now that first part there, if you hear his voice, what's that talking about? Obviously we don't hear God's voice audibly, but we have God's word. We have God's word. And so anytime that we are, are reading God's word, we're hearing his voice. Anytime we're hearing God's word read, we're hearing his voice. All the, all the scripture reading that we've had this morning is the voice of God speaking to us. When you hear the word of God preached, if it is faithful to the word of God, it is God's voice. When another brother comes alongside and points out sin in your life, 
and shows you from Scripture what God's Word said, that's God's voice. And the psalmist is saying, when you hear God's voice, when you hear the commands, when you hear God calling out to you in His Word, when you, when you see the commandments, when you see the, the confrontation that is there, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. That word harden has the idea of becoming stiff or stubborn. Digging in your feet. I'm not going to give in. A lot of times we look at that as a good thing, right? And we want to hold fast to the faith. We want to hold fast to our hope. That's a good form of stubbornness. That's not what this what the author of Psalm 95 is talking about. He's talking about spiritual stubbornness. He's talking about not wanting to to give in, not wanting to accept what the Word of God has to say for us. This is a position of opposition against the Word of God. It has the idea of, of solidifying your position. You're probably already sinning against whatever the command is. You, you know that there's something about you that doesn't match up with what the Word of God is saying. But instead of repenting, instead of obeying, you dig in. You say, I, I, I don't want to listen. I don't want to obey. I don't want to give in to what the Word of God has to say for me. The psalmist here gives an example. He says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. What is he talking about? Turn over to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter number 17. We'll take a look at what's going on here. For some context, the people of Israel... Um, had just come out of bondage from Egypt. They're on their way to Mount Sinai where they're going to get uh, God's law. And then from there, they're going to be going to the promised land. That's, that's the goal, right? That's everything that they have been hoping for is, is finally coming to, to fruition. And, and they're on this path and they're, they're walking through the wilderness. They're traveling through the wilderness to get there. If you've looked at a map, it's the, the Middle East is a lot of dry desert. Um, and so they're traveling and, and they come to a place here called um, Rephidim. In chapter 17 of, of Exodus, starting verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. <coughs> and the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you here, there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel." And because they tested the Lord by saying, is this, is the Lord among us? Again, the readers, the quoters of Psalm 95 would know exactly what the psalmist is referring to when he mentions these, this location of, of Meribah and Massah. They know exactly what happened here. We may be a little bit fuzzy uh, in our day and age. I know even preaching, we tend to, to be in the, in the New Testament, not so much in the Old Testament. So if, if you're not spending time reading the Old Testament, you might be completely unfamiliar with what the psalmist is referring to. But he's referring to this time where they, they were in the wilderness, they needed water, there was no water for them. And they began to stir up strife. They began to quarrel. 
And it's interesting, who did they quarrel with? They quarreled with the one who was the voice of God. Do you notice that? They quarreled with the one who was the voice of God. The one who God had sent to bring them out of Egypt. The one who God used to tell them everything that he wanted them to do. All the commands. This is the man that they were quarreling against. That they were grumbling against. That they were, in Moses' mind at least, and maybe in reality, that they were ready to stone. They were ready to kill him. That's how entrenched they were how angry they were, how selfish they were, and what was going on. The fact that they had no water and God had not provided. Did they know that that this was God's plan? Absolutely. Did they know that, that Moses was just following God's command? Of course they did. But they became stubborn and quarrelsome. Is that not the case for us as well? when we find ourselves at odds with the Word of God and we're not willing to repent and give in, what do we tend to do? We tend to argue. Just like a, a teenager does. When, when they don't want to follow the rules of the household. But, but have you considered this, mom and dad? I, I, this, this makes much more sense to me. And begin to, to argue back and, and eventually it can get to a point of quarreling dishonor. And that's where the the people of Israel find themselves. James chapter 4 tells us in verses 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot attain. Now, was it a legitimate desire that they had here in the wilderness? Yes, we would like to continue living with water. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good desire. But it became something that caused them to go against the commandment of God, to go against the man of God that God had put forward, to go against the word of God. And they were attacking this person. They were attacking God. They were attacking God and his word. A person with a wandering heart will become stubborn towards the word of God and its convicting work in their life. It's convicting work. The second word here, that, that word uh, quarreling comes from the word meribah. That's what it means, quarreling. That's why it's translated quarreling in the Septuagint. And in Hebrews chapter 3. Meribah means quarreling. The second word, masah, means testing. It means testing. And we see here the second symptom of a wandering heart is that a, wandering, a person with a wandering heart begins to judge God. They begin to judge God. Now, that's a little bit backwards, don't you think? We know that Scripture tells us that God is the judge, yet when we are, are people who have a wandering heart, we lose focus of the reality of Scripture. And everything becomes about us. And we begin to judge God and to put God to the test. That word Messiah has the idea of putting somebody on trial. They tested God. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, a math test. Hey God, can you do this? It was, are you there? Are you there? Right? Isn't that what it says at the end there? It says, uh, in, oh, I'm in the wrong place. No, I'm not. Sorry, I lost my place. He says, um, is not the Lord among us? Is he really there? Is he really out there? And they're, they're testing God. They're judging God. They're putting him on trial. That's what that word means. Is the Lord among us? Basically saying, God, if you're really there, prove it. God, if this is really your will for our lives right now, if it's really your will for us to be here in the wilderness where there's no water, prove it. Prove it. Show us that you are there. Show us that you're working in this. Give us a sign. What's interesting is the people of Israel didn't change a whole lot from 
Massa and Meribah to Christ's day. Matthew 12, 38-39, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is Matthew 12. All right? If you're familiar with the book of Matthew, Jesus has done a lot of signs. He's done a lot of wonders. He's done a lot of miracles to this point already. And they come to him, though, and, and, and they say, We want to believe you, but we need a sign. We, we need to know for sure that you are who you claim to be. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. We won't go into all of that this morning. But I think it's interesting, the beginning of Christ's response there, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Is that not a great picture of a wandering heart? When we think about the marriage covenant and we think about the idea of a wandering heart, what do we call that? Adultery. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation, those with a wandering heart, seek for a sign. They're not content with the Word of God. They're stubborn against the Word of God. And they want to see a God. They want to judge God. They want God to work on their terms. They want God to do what they think needs to be done. When they're going through the wilderness, they want God to to provide exactly what they want. They want the water that they want. When we're going through the wilderness of our lives, do we not often fall into the same trap? We go through a hard time when we say, God, Get me out of this. This isn't fair. This isn't right. I don't deserve this. Take it away. Yesterday morning before we came for the parenting conference, I was sitting in the car and uh, turned the radio on. Christian radio station. And uh, it was actually playing the song that we just sang. It was almost done, and it finished, and I was like, yeah, it's great, great song. It's thinking about this morning, and then all of a sudden, the next song that came on started playing, and I was listening to the words, and I'm, I keep kind of waiting for the words to resolve in a way that, that I thought that it should, uh, in a way that would be right and biblical, and it never did. And 80% of the words in the song is this phrase, God, turn it around. God, turn it around. God, turn it around. I'm praying God come and turn this thing around. Second verse. I'm calling on the name that changes everything. God, turn it around. God, turn it around. God, turn it around. All my hope is in the name of of Jesus. Breakthrough will come. Come in the name of Jesus. God, turn it around. That is the song of a wandering heart. Not one time in this song is there anything about God's sovereignty? Is there anything about God's will? Is there anything about what God is trying to do to change you, to conform you, to to make you like Christ? It's all about God, get rid of this. I'm in struggle. I'm I'm in heartache. I'm in pain. Turn it around. That's a song of Messiah. Be careful what you listen to, even under the guise of Christianity. A wandering heart says, God, turn it around. Get me out of this. Where are you? How can this be your will? What what do you think you're doing? Prove yourself to me based on my assumptions and my desires. A heart that belongs to God sings a song that we just sang a few minutes ago. As long as you are glorified. Whatever. Are you good only when I prosper and true only when I'm filled? Are you king only when I'm carefree and God only when I'm well? No. You are right and good and true and perfect 
in all those times. That's the heart of a person whose heart is in tune with God. The wandering heart says, take it away. A heart that belongs to God says, change me. Teach me. Make me like Christ. A person with a wandering heart will judge God based on their own desires rather than judge themselves based on God's word. We've already seen that they're stubborn against God's word. They, they're going to judge God because they don't want to conform to God's word. They want God to conform to them. But not only that, but they ignore the truth. He says, though they had seen my work. He says, they put me to the test. They put me on trial and said, prove yourself, even though they'd already seen my work. They'd already seen the great things that he'd done. What had he done? This generation that he's talking about was in Egypt. They saw the plagues. They saw 10 plagues come. They saw everything that happened to the nation of Egypt. They saw the firstborn. They probably heard the wailing of families as firstborn died. They saw God move in a miraculous way as they came to the Red Sea. And and this fear that they had that they were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And yet God opens the Red Sea. And they walk across it on dry ground. Not muddy ground, dry ground. And then they turn around and Pharaoh's army comes marching through and they see God close it on them and destroy Pharaoh's army. Just before this, they had seen God provide food in the desert. They called it manna, food from heaven, bread from heaven. And yet everything that they had seen, they ignored. They forgot. They forgot the faithfulness of God and they put him on trial. Let me ask you this morning, do you make a habit of rehearsing the faithfulness of God in your life? Do you make a habit of rehearsing the faithfulness of God in your life? Or do you ignore what he has done and become bitter and selfish in your desires? Has God not done enough for you? Have you forgotten the great things that God has done for you? The the way that he has led you from, from even your point of salvation to now? Salvation itself is a great mystery and wonder and work of God. But even from that point to where you are now in your Christian life, do you not see the faithfulness of God day after day, month after month, year after year? Or are you focused on yourself and your desires? Are you ignoring what he has done and calling on him to do more? A person with a wandering heart will ignore what they know God has done in order to validate pursuing their own desires. See, it's easy to pursue our own way when we forget God's faithfulness. When we forget that God has already proven who he is to us. He continues on and he says this, Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. The last symptom that I see here is continuing disobedience. Continuing disobedience. He says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. Now we know that uh, it didn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to Meribah Massah, right? So what's he talking about here? He's talking about another instance in the history of the Israelites. If you remember their goal, their ultimate goal was to get to the promised land, was to get to the land of Canaan. That was what God had promised to Abraham. If you remember back, what is, it feels like years ago now, back to our Genesis study, 
Abraham was early on too, so it was probably years ago. Um, but God made a promise to Abraham that, that the land of Canaan would be for him and for his descendants. And Abraham never owned the land of Canaan. He, all he owned was a small burial plot. And so he never took possession of the land of Canaan. And then his son uh, Isaac never took possession of the land of Canaan, was a, was a sojourner, was a wanderer in the land. And his son, and Isaac's son Jacob, same thing. In fact, Jacob died in Egypt. If you remember the end of, chapter, of, of Genesis chapter 50, we see the nation of Israel growing in Genesis. And we begin Exodus with, with that nation developing and becoming too big. And they begin to, to cause some uh, anguish in the new Pharaoh. And so he puts them into bondage. And for 400 years, they're in bondage to Pharaoh all looking forward to the promise of the promised land. That's their goal. That's what they were seeking to attain. Numbers chapter 14 gives us the story that it's talking about here. Numbers chapter 14, actually a little bit before that, this goal of making it to the promised land, they finally get there. They've stopped at Sinai. They've gotten the law of God. They, they now come to the land of Canaan and they send spies into the land for 40 days. 12 spies. Some of you know the, the children's song. You know, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and 2 were good. That's what we're talking about. Right? 12 spies go into the land of Canaan 40 days later, they come back out and they give their report and they say, man, this land is awesome. It is flowing with milk and honey. That sounds like a mess to me, but it was a really good thing back then. All right, it's flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are, are just massive. The vines are, are amazing. There's just uh, opulence and fruit and it's just, it's a wonderful, blessed land. But there's a problem, right? There are other people there. And those other people are big and they're angry and nasty and mean. And I don't, I don't think we stand a chance. We should probably rethink this whole conquering Canaan campaign. All right. We need to, we need to take a step back here. Let's, let's regroup and, uh, and decide what, what's a better, a better avenue to go. Maybe there's another place. Maybe we got the map wrong. Maybe this isn't the promised land that God had given to, to Father Abraham except for two guys, right? 10 were bad, two were good. Two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And they stood up and they said, no, God said, take the land. He's with us. Let's go in and take the land. And if you know the story, the people of Israel ignored Joshua and Caleb's advice and they, they stuck with the advice of the other 10 and the Bible says that they rebelled against God. It wasn't just a, a choice. It was a rebellion. God had said, go in and conquer the land. And they said, no thanks. No, we're, we're not going to do that. And they rebelled. And God's anger was kindled against them. And then uh, Moses... Uh, goes to the Lord on behalf of the nation of Israel. And that's, a, that's an interesting passage we'll get to someday in 30 years when we get to Numbers. But uh, read it. it. I think it's interesting. And we come to chapter 14, verse 20. It says this, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. And he goes on to talk about Caleb, who will see it, and we know Joshua sees it as well. I think there's some interesting words here. He says, these ones who saw what I did in Egypt and they saw what I did in the wilderness and yet they have again put me to the test. 
And then he says, they've not obeyed my voice. Over and over and over again, we see disobedience in the nation of Israel in the wilderness. We see not only here as they're on the brink of the promised land, but we see them for the next 40 years wandering the, the wilderness as God gave, gave them this judgment that they would not enter his rest, that they would not enter this promised land. For the next 40 years, they, they continued to disobey. Just after this, we see there's a man who goes against God's word about the Sabbath and he's stoned as a, as a reminder that God is serious about his command. He's serious about his word. And then we see this rising up by a man named Korah, this rebellion. And God deals with them by opening the earth and swallowing them up. We see again, the nation of Israel back at Meribah and again with no water. And this time God tells Moses to go speak to the rock. And Moses says, I'll do you one better. And he hits the rock. And God still gives water to the nation of Israel, but because of Moses' disobedience, he then cannot go into the promised land. We see after that, the people of God rebelling against God again, and he sends fiery serpents as judgment. And we have that beautiful picture that Christ references in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's interesting that God says here in Psalm 95, I loathed that generation. I loathed that generation. This is the prognosis of a wandering heart. The prognosis is the likely course of a disease or treatment. When we find ourselves sick or, or diseased, we want to know how it's going to go. We want to know how things are going to progress. We want to know what it's going to look like in the end. And that's the prognosis. And, and God gives us the prognosis of a wandering heart. As he points us back to the children of Israel here in Psalm 95. He says, I loathed that generation for 40 years. That word loathed has the idea of being disgusted with something. It's like you're driving down the, the road and you, and you get that whiff. And you know what that whiff is. That skunk. Somebody hit a skunk. And it's just, it's just you can't get away from it. It's nasty. And you wrinkle your nose and you're trying to shut off any vents that might be letting that air in. That's the idea. It's a, it's a loathing it's a repulsion. God is repulsed by wandering hearts. You know, I think a lot of times we, we look at ourselves and we say, yeah, you know, I tend to wander a little bit. We've got that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And it's almost like a, yeah, it happens. God loathes wandering hearts. What does he say there? He says, um, I loathe that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. That's where I got this from. They go astray in their heart. The prognosis for those who remain wandering in their hearts away from God is loathing, is distaste. But he continues on and he says, and they have not known my ways. This is an interesting statement. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the children of Israel. We just talked about all the things that they had seen God do. All the things that they had participated in. And God says, and they have not known my ways. You may be here this morning and you came and participated in worship. You knew all the right things to say. Even have nice things to add to A&I time, but the question I have for you this morning is, does God have your heart? 
Are you just going through the motions of Christianity and church? And in reality, you're wandering further and further and further away. They knew about God, but they didn't know God. Therefore, he says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He doesn't just loathe them. He doesn't just see them as people who don't know him, but they are under God's judgment. Because of their disobedience and because of their unbelief, they never saw the promised land. They never had rest physically. They never had rest relationally with God. They wandered for 40 years until they died. What an existence to wander hopelessly until your life is done. That's the prognosis of a wandering heart. That's the prognosis for someone who is not willing to repent and turn back to God. Who's not willing to get rid of their stubbornness and come back under the authority of the word of God. Who's not willing to say, God, you are the judge, not me. Who's not willing to take the time and rehearse for themselves the faithfulness of God in their life. Who's not willing to repent of their disobedience, but continues over and over and over again. Where are you this morning? Where is your heart this morning? Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, God speaks to a church that had all the right actions, doing all the right things, but there was one problem. The church of Ephesus he, says, Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. You know, you can do all, a lot of that stuff, pretty much all of that stuff in the flesh. I can be really intelligent and figure out who's teaching the wrong thing. And I can call them out for it. And I can stand up for what I know to be true. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. That's not the end. It doesn't have to be. God gives a resolution. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. There's a solution. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The relationship with God can be restored if we just repent. If we come back from the wanderings and put ourselves under the authority of God. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is wandering away from God because it was never his in the first place. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't even know Jesus Christ is your Savior. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, you know all the, the right things to say, you know. All the things that you need to do, you know how to look like a Christian, but your heart does not belong to God. I would encourage you this morning, if that is you, do not leave this place without submitting yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ, your Savior, who gave himself for you. So that as Andy reminded us of a couple of weeks ago, we could be changed from the enemies of God to sons and daughters of the King. Where's your heart this morning? Next week, we're going to look at preventative maintenance. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, amen, 
I'm, I'm on board. I'm with the Lord. Proverbs tells us to be careful when we think we stand, lest we fall. So next week, we're going to look at back into Hebrews chapter 3 and we'll see some preventative maintenance for wandering hearts. But I ask you this morning, examine yourselves and see where your heart truly is this morning. Does your heart belong to the Lord? Or have you begun to drift? Have you begun to let loose of the anchor of your soul? Have you begun to wander away into your own desires? Come back to Christ. Anchor your life in Him. Set aside your selfishness and submit to the Savior of your soul. Father, we thank you that even in such a dire situation as a wandering heart, Lord, there is hope and there can be joy and there can be restoration and there can be newness of a relationship with you. And Lord, I know it's easy for us to to feel like we've got it all together, to feel like we're not that bad. We're, maybe we're not, we're not all the way there wandering, and yet so often, Lord, we are deceiving ourselves. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. <clears throat> Who can know it? Lord, I pray that you would open the reality of our hearts for us this morning. That we would not assume that we are good to go as Christians and followers of you, but that we would examine our hearts, that you would open our hearts, that your word would cut deep, that it would show us the areas of our hearts where we've begun to wander away from you, where we've begun, become stubborn to your word, where we've, we've begun to judge you, we've begun to ignore the things that you have done. We've, we've even continued in sin, habitual sin. all acting like nothing is wrong. God, open our eyes to the reality of our wandering hearts and bring us back from wandering to you. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to turn back to him. Help us to love him as you call us to in Revelation 2. Help us to return to that first love to you. Not so that we can glorify ourselves through an amazing testimony, but so that we can glorify you and the work of your word and the work of the Holy Spirit. As he takes the word and he dives deep into our heart, Lord, help us to be soft. Help us to be malleable. Help us to be obedient. Make us like Christ. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.